So what we've been doing is talking to the professional talkers. We have. And as a professional talker, they out talk me. Oh, man, they can talk. Um, I, I, you know, I have to say, so we're about to play an interview with uh, Glenn Funk. Um, we have already spoken with the challengers in the DA's office, and now we're going to actually hear from the DA that's seeking re-election. But should we tell folks who we are? No. I mean, but we tried that. And then I messed and it up, then and then I deleted Jay it. And couldn't say the name of the podcast, so we almost... I mean, we have to say it at some point, I guess. I guess so. I'm Jay. I'm Brian. This is the BNA Podcast. He did it again. This is the BNA Podcast. So this is a thing like today. We had one of those when we were talking to the general. I like that. I like the general funk. I general, only got general to say funk it once because yeah, he I doesn't know. like it. He just is perfectly happy to be called by his name. But, but, but General Funk, you know, that was fun. I, how is he not using, you know, uh, "Bring on the Funk" as part of his theme song? Matter of fact, I may have to use that for Maybe our opening we'll music today. Yeah, yeah, bring it in. Bring it. Bring on the funk. You know, it'll be illegal, but that's okay. Well, well, we can. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's illegal. You know how to get the rights stuff for that. Well, you, you know can, how to get the rights. You We're probably not even to. know the guy that wrote the song. I might. I don't know. I'd have to look and see. Who wrote it yeah anyway well it's uh glad to be here with you even though it is a little steamy here in our studio at the city road chapel united methodist church and remember this sunday easter sunday 9 a.m the uh, uh, pastor jay will be have, will have his other outfit on i will and, have the robe uh, on he'll have, his, he'll have a robe on and uh, with the shawl and all that stuff and we'll be presiding over the 9 a.m easter service here at City Road Chapel, and y'all are welcome to come. I, I Everybody actually should come. It's, I put on I put on Facebook. It's a better party if there are more people there. The more the more the merrier. So uh, it won't be flashy. I mean, we're not we're not like some of those other churches. It's going to be pretty simple. But we'd still yeah, love to I, have you. You know, it's funny. I had a, speaking of this, and this is a very Nashville thing to talk about, right? right. So I had a conversation. Um, as I've talked about on the podcast before, I am a person in recovery and a family that's in recovery, and we're all you know recovery. We do recovery stuff. So a guy that was interested in recovery called me and we had breakfast. He is going through a divorce, has his daughter that's younger and wanted to go to church service. Right. And so he went to a church service. I will right. not call out who it was. It's a perfectly acceptable church. Though. Right. It's sure. not one of right. the ones that I have called out in the past. Right. No. As a non-acceptable church. Right. Because I would have told him that. Yeah. So it's not. It wasn't the, in Mount Juliet. We don't mention Pastor Greg Locke's name because of the obvious problems with right. mentioning Pastor Greg Locke. So anyway, as, he went uh, to he this church. He did not go to that yeah. church. Yeah. So, uh, and he was completely put off by the um, the stage play and the glamour and the videos and all that kind of stuff. You know, he had gone looking for some place that might actually sing a hymn, mm-hmm. might actually, you know, just preach a story uh, from from the Bible right uh, and and have an encouraging and loving environment sure. he was not all about he didn't need to be entertained yeah well that's one of the big questions now and I think more and more folks are in that kind of mindset where it's it's less about entertainment but you know churches well, it are, got out of control right I mean it started out as a great idea to bring in youth and families and stuff right. like that and then it just became it's like watching uh, you know like a, a talk show on CBS or something 
no. you know, I, I I did a little work around the contemporary Christian music industry for a while. As have I. As, and what I always thought was, well, these are the folks that couldn't make it in the real music business. There was some of that. And, you know, I mean, I love them. Don't get me, me wrong. Me too. But I, it's funny because I had this conversation with my buddy the other day because mm-hmm. in Nashville, there's a lot of musicians in a lot of churches that are really good musicians. Very right? good. Playing yeah. great music. And it's, but... But there are times when it just goes a step too far and it starts taking away from the message. And, right. uh, and it, you know, people are still looking for um, that, you know, the comfort food church. Right. Right. You know? So anyway, if I get this edited in time, this coming Sunday is Easter Sunday. Make your mama happy and go to church. Go to church. Go to church. It'd be great. So uh, it's another week here in Nashville. We're going to have an interview with our uh, with General Funk. General Funk. Uh, in just a minute. And uh, but what, way, what do yeah. we what do we need to talk about before we talk to him? Well, there's a, there's just a couple of things going on, and and these these interview podcasts obviously are going to be shortened when it comes the opportunity for us to talk about all that's going on in Nashville. There's a lot going on in Nashville. Uh, I follow uh, um, two, Pith in the Wind and Startles Easily, both on on Twitter, and they do a great job of keeping us up to date on what's happening in the Metro Council. Right. Probably will invite one of them to come in and sit for an interview as well and, and talk about some of the overriding themes, because mm-hmm. you can't help but go through it and be sometimes almost entertained, you know, by when she's doing her play-by-play. I mean, we did have a Metro Council member vote to censure himself this week. I did hear about that. That was really cool. Jonathan Hall, who just screwed up, made a mistake in the campaign finance world. He's not seeking re-election. And when it came time to vote to censure him, as was recommended by the Ethics Committee, well, by God, he voted to censure himself. Might as well. Get Might it over well. well. Yeah, you know. Just accept it and move on. Yeah, exactly. I, I understand he is not running again. He is not running again. Um, so that, if you're in District 1, that seat's going to be coming open. Of course, time all of look. the districts, there's going to be lots of seats coming open. Yeah, there'll be a lot of changes. Yeah, a lot of changes. A lot of folks are term limited out, so oh, uh, yeah, folks that's have true. been there. So that's it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes down we'll, over we'll, time. We'll get into that soon. Exactly. Because but, it will be an issue for the beginning. But we have an election that's happening like in just a couple of weeks. Officially, our early voting starts tomorrow. So if you want to cast your vote, you can. And we've been focusing on the district attorney's race. Uh, right. There are three very capable candidates. Uh, and uh, we've had a chance to speak with a couple. But today we were blessed to speak with the current district attorney, Glenn Funk. And he came to our fancy studios here yes. so that we could have a conversation. So um, hope you enjoy this interview. Okay, we are here today with the third in our series of interviews with candidates for the district attorney, and uh, we've said, basically, we think maybe the district attorney's race is the most important one that's uh, happening this uh, cycle. So we're here with Glenn Funk, who is the district attorney of Nashville, and we're welcome to the BNA podcast. I'm excited to be here. Always always a great opportunity to uh, 
have a chance to visit about the important parts of the justice system in Nashville. Sure. And, uh, you know, one of the good things about having a contested race is people actually pay attention to what's yeah. going on in the courthouse. And there's a lot going on in Nashville that is really leading the country. And so I uh, really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to talk about the work of my office. So, so just to get started, just so folks know a little bit more about you, I mean, how did you end up in Nashville? What, what brings you into the office that you're in today? Sure. Uh, I went to Wake Forest undergraduate mm-hmm. in North Carolina, then went to Ole Miss for law school. In the summers uh, in law school, I worked for George Barrett and Charlie Ray. Uh, my best friend was from Mount Juliet. His name's Webb Campbell. Uh, his father, Will Campbell, was a preacher and a theologian, a civil rights activist. Absolutely. Well known. Uh, author. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I worked here in the summers. When I got out of law school, the uh, district attorney at the time, a man named Tom Shriver, had said I could have the first available job. I uh, did not have one when I first got out of school, so I went to work for A.C. Wharton as an assistant public defender in Memphis. Gotcha. I worked there for roughly eight to nine months before the DA's job opened up here, moved here as an assistant district attorney in January of 1986, prosecuted for three and a half years, uh, then left the DA's office, took it, uh, went into private practice doing primarily criminal defense and did that for 25 years until uh, my predecessor retired from his job and I sought uh, election to this position in 2014 and was fortunate enough uh, to be elected. Okay. So um, you've now been serving in this role for eight years. Uh, what would be the things that you would lift up as kind of the the highlights of your time in this office? Uh, what are the things you're proudest of or you, you think folks need to know about how you've already served the city? Sure. Uh, my background uh, gave me experience on both sides. My time as an assistant public defender made me a better prosecutor. My time as a prosecutor and a public defender made me a better criminal defense attorney. And so for 25 years when I was a criminal defense attorney, I would sometimes complain to friends or family and say, well, this is wrong. We should not be uh, spending our resources and incarcerating folks for minor offenses when public safety might actually require us to not incarcerate on, on certain offenses. Or public safety might require some supports, whether that's drug treatment, mental health treatment, maybe just diverting the case all the way out of the criminal justice system. And at the same time, sometimes I would see major crimes, serious violent crimes that I felt needed to be prosecuted. And I was like, well, that is where the resources of the office needed to go. So I ran for office in 2014 and I said the following things. First of all, I want to make sure that we take care of the violent crime, make sure that we keep our community safe in that way by by prosecuting those cases seriously and effectively, efficiently, which we've done. I also want to make our community safe by making sure that um, on the lower level offenses, right, we decide what even needs to be prosecuted. Driving on a revoked license, for instance, is a crime of poverty. Right? Right. Somebody who maybe got a speeding ticket, $50 fine, they didn't pay it on time, all of a sudden it's $500, but they work second shift at the Crystal, and $500 means whatever, seven into 60 hours of work, plus then a reinstatement fee of $250. And They've got to negotiate the red tape, and all of a sudden they've picked up another charge of driving on a revoked license, and now they're going to jail for it, right? I mean, for whatever reason, in 2013, we were prosecuting those cases so hard that we had 18,000 inmate days in jail Hmm. for just driving on a revoked license, right? So that was a tremendous waste of money. 
it was also incarcerating folks needlessly, taking them away from their families. We needed to change that. And there, you know, other minor offenses. We, we needed we needed to be reorienting. And, and if we now what we do is we dismiss the case before they're even booked and processed. But then I work with the sheriff's department, Darren Hall to help people get their driver's license reinstated. Okay. So so we're making a difference recidivism with, with that, with mental health treatment. Reduce recidivism by giving proper supports. Probation shouldn't be about punishment. It should be about supports. Uh, drug treatment, uh, whether it's the recovery court under Gail Robinson uh, that we helped found or uh, the DC4 that was founded by Seth Norman and now run by Jennifer Smith. Uh, whether it's human trafficking, where we have Grace Empowered and the Hearts Court to actually treat folks like, like, like they're the victims, right? Instead of trying to put them in jail for issues where they've been found themselves trafficked, um, and so let's reduce recidivism by giving the treatment supports and even dismissing cases, getting it out of the system if it's not something that we really want to go forward on. And then thirdly, domestic violence, mm-hmm. because how do we end domestic violence? Well. First thing we've got to do is humanize the victim. And so we have, uh, I created a team of 22 professionals, nine lawyers, nine victim witness coordinators, three prosecution support unit, and a full-time support staff to where we actually meet with victims of domestic violence within 24 hours of them calling the police. Hmm. We get them to tell their story. We make sure that they are heard. We give them services. What do you need? Do you need counseling? Do you need housing? Do you need child care? You know, what do you, what do you need right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us what happened right now. Um, and then what do you want going forward for your family, right? Do you need to move on to your next relationship and how can we help that? Or do you need for this relationship to get healthier and how can we use the uh, the processes of the court system to help you get into that situation? At, at the same time, how can we hold the offender accountable to at least get them some rehabilitation and some treatment um, so that they're healthier, even if it's for their next relationship instead of this relationship? We've By doing that, we've cut down on recidivism through that, uh, through those programs, we have supported folks to where nation- nationwide, only about five to fifteen percent of victims of domestic violence even show up for court. In Nashville, if we've if we've gotten you to come into one of those early intervention meetings within twenty four hours, it's eighty two percent. Okay, we have a sixty percent successful prosecution in those. Actually, it's about between sixty and sixty seven. Which means that not only did the victim get support, but that the offender was held accountable and at least had to go to some classes. That's five times the national average. So I'm really proud of the way that we have treated uh, the justice system as figuring out what do we need to do to drive down recidivism, support victims, and have healthy outcomes. Excellent. That's great. I'm so glad you're here, Glenn. Thanks for taking the time. The we spent some time talking to the the other candidates, and that's an important part of the process. We've stayed out of picking winners and losers, not that we could anyway. But one of the things that I think I was I was talking to Jay about is like you know the thing that's unfair in all elections is that you know you got eight years of stuff to brag on, they don't right. It's like so what's the, what are the next eight years? What do they look like for Glenn Funk in the DA's office? What are the technologies that maybe can be implemented? Uh, ideas that you've been you know, prepping to try and, and things that we might see coming in the future. Sure. Great. Most of the major policy initiatives have taken years to get going. The, the Behavioral Care Center, where Nashville has the gold standard with regards to mental health treatment in the country, that took us six years to get up and going, right? Working with the Sheriff's Department, he now has a, it's essentially a, a, a mental health hospital next door to his jail, 
it's run by the sheriff's department, but but through a contract with the mental health co-op, where folks get real meaningful inpatient treatment, get their cases uh, dismissed and expunged at the end of success of a successful treatment program. They leave with 30, 60, and 90 days worth of checkup dates with the mental health co-op, 30 days of meds in their pocket, and a and a, a housing plan as they're leaving because nobody's released to the streets. It, it, it's it's doing an amazing job. What's the? I didn't mean to interrupt because it's a good idea and it's I support it one hundred percent. What's the capacity of that? The capacity is thirty men and thirty women. Uh, it's now been open for a year and a half. We have already in the last six months had more folks come through the behavioral care center than we had for the whole first year. And now that we're 18 to 19 months into it, I can report that we only have less than a 15% recidivism rate for that population. So it's amazing. But but that, that took years for us to get up and going because we had to have the treatment pro- partners. We had to have the, the certifications. We had to have the buy-in from the public defender's office and from uh, funding from the mayor's office. So it takes a while. But let me tell you three things that we're working on right now that I'm really excited about. First off is we've dealt with mental health. We also have to deal with folks that are incompetent to stand trial. That means a cognitive delay. Somebody might have had a traumatic brain injury after a car accident or someone might have been born with a cognitive delay right well if they get arrested for doing something some minor crime Mm -hmm. then metro does not pay for any competency training for that person which means they come into court the judge looks at us this person's incompetent vanderbilt certified them as incompetent three months ago six months ago a year ago we have to dismiss the case. Well, that doesn't help that individual. It also doesn't help the community. We've been, I've been trying to, to get some traction on this for a number of years, but because it costs money, um, it's been tough for me to get real traction on that. Judge Melissa Blackburn is doing an amazing job with mental health and, and veterans court. The sheriff's been amazing to work with, but we were unable to get traction on that until roughly one year ago this month, there was a person that had multiple arrests uh, assaulted a nurse who was walking to her car at the St. Thomas Midtown Hospital. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, people started paying attention to what we'd been identifying as a problem. Um, and so what happened was 15 years ago, the state, to save money, said, we're not going to pay for competency training for misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. So somebody like this person that attacked the nurse had been in and out of the system for several times there's somebody down in antioch that Mm -hmm. defecates in the in the post office down in antioch and and it's a real problem because they get arrested but we can't go forward and so what are we going to do so working with judge blackburn the sheriff the public defender martisa johnson we uh, have been working on a way for Metro to put things in place, working with these stakeholders uh, to actually give meaningful help on competency training and housing and continued uh, counseling. Uh, we've got a major announcement coming on Thursday afternoon at 1.30. I cannot spoil the surprise because the mayor's going to make the big announcement. But I'm super excited, as if I hadn't already spoiled it, but I'm super excited about where we're going to be as a city. Now, this will be a pilot project, but we did an audit last April. There's about 229 individuals that have already been deemed incompetent who cycle through the system regularly and cause... Um, whether it's just minor vandalism or whether it's, it goes all the way to an assault, cause problems, not 
for, for their community, uh, but also you know they don't want to be in that situation. They, people would much rather be competent than incompetent. Mm-hmm. And so if if we as a city can move forward first through the pilot phase and then into a full-blown program that we could have permanent in Nashville, that would be amazing. The second thing, the second thing that I'm super excited about is a juvenile assessment center, mm-hmm. right? So let me tell you what that means, because we've already got a restorative justice program in juvenile court, and Sheila Calloway is amazing in the things mm-hmm. that she does for, for, for juveniles who are charged with crime, amazing. But an assessment center is critical for our long-term health as a city. What happens now, it's primarily for status offenses. So if a young person is out on the streets at 3 in the morning that's violating curfew, they get put in the patrol car. If they have uh, been a runaway, then they're put in the patrol car. What does the officer do? He takes them to juvenile court. Right. They go in front of a judge. They meet a probation officer. Neither of those offenses can a person be uh, held, right? And so they're given a stern talking to, and they're handed back to their parents, and the parents drive them home. And so the individual, the youth, has learned two things. Number one, they learn that they're a bad person. They're mm-hmm. a kid that needs to go to juvie, right? right? And so that, that, that ripping of the fabric with society has started then. The second thing they learn is the juvenile court is not going to do anything to them, and so those youth oftentimes then reoffend and sometimes reoffend in a in a more serious way. But what we're going to start doing on a pilot program that I expect to be able to get started this summer is we're going to start an assessment center. We're going to house it at the Office of Family Safety early. Though when the new juvenile court's built, then it, there'll be some property next sure. to that next to that campus that we can do this. Where instead of going to juvie, they'll be taken to an Office of Family Safety where they will meet an employee of the juvenile court who doesn't wear a badge, doesn't wear a robe, doesn't have a gun on them. And essentially at the assessment center, which eliminates the air of criminality, they're brought in and someone from the juvenile court can say to the youth, you know, what's going on? What are you doing out at three in the morning? Why did you run away from home? What are your problems in the house? And then they can look at mom and dad and say, you know, why do you think your son or daughter ran away? And then that person for juvenile court will serve as essentially a clearinghouse because we've got hundreds of amazing nonprofits all around mm-hmm. the county. Right? Oh, so you live up uh, Gallatin Road toward Inglewood. You know what? We've got a great nonprofit that works with families that have these specific issues. Let me see if I can and, – and, and let me call them, get somebody down here, and let them start some counseling with your family. Sure. Let's, uh, let's, oh, you live in Bellevue. Let me get somebody from the Bellevue area. We have – a case going right now where a junior in high school from the Antioch area who was a Division I uh, basketball prospect shot and killed somebody who was a Division I football prospect. Juniors in high school. Two mm-hmm. lives ruined. One's right. over. The other, one, uh, the other one is essentially ruined. Right. The, the person that did the shooting had been a runaway six times. Think if we had had the tools available to have a meaningful intervention any of those six times prior before this shooting happened. I cannot guarantee that the shooting wouldn't happen. But as a city, we need to see what we can do to intervene and provide supports. And thanks to mm-hmm. you know, not, not only what, what I've been doing, but 
what Inspector Imhoff with the Metro Nashville Police Department's been doing, with what Judge Calloway's doing. Uh, we are on the threshold of actually getting that up and started as early as this summer. Uh, I'm excited about it, uh, and, and I'm hopeful that as we build the new juvenile court facility, we're going to be able to have a very robust, robust set of services to where we can really make a difference in the lives of, of juveniles. Uh, the, the third thing, uh, we're, we're dealing with some homelessness issues. Obviously, we have to be able to provide housing supports. We have to be able to provide the mental health supports, which we do have mental mm-hmm. health supports. We've got to provide uh, substance abuse. We've got to be able to provide uh, job training and give the, and give those supports to folks. But let's see if we can't really find out what those needs are and be able to give folks the, 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 the support that they need so that they can transition into being right. back as, as fully uh, embraced members of the community. And, and, and we, we have to do that as a city. Um, well, that brings up a question for me because I t- testified at the Senate Judiciary Committee this past week about SB 1610, which is the one that is going to basically turn, uh, expand the law to where anybody that camps on public property is considered a felon, a Class C felony. I mean, what's your thought about that particular bill and legislation? And for that matter, uh, if you want to rail about the legislature, we do on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're totally, we're great with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a safe space for railing about the legislature. Yeah. If we want somebody to be able to get into housing, we also need them to be able to get into a job. And right. if you give them a felony conviction, it makes it exponentially more difficult to get a job. So we are hurting ourselves by felonizing that behavior. It's similar to the old law that your third offense of simple possession would be a felony. And when I took office in 2014, I said, we're not doing that anymore. We should never felonize somebody who's got a a drug abuse problem or a drug use problem. Uh, And I got pushback. Sure. I got pushback from judges. I got pushback from some media members. And I go, well, how are they going to learn their lesson? Oh, so you're going to teach them a lesson not to smoke marijuana, but you're going to handicap them with a felony conviction for the rest of their life in order to cure them of the fact that they enjoy marijuana. That was skewed to me, and so we stopped it right away. We mm-hmm. could, we, you know, we still prosecuted, in, you know, some folks for some possession of drugs, but only as a misdemeanor. And we've, we've driven down our numbers to where we don't put people in jail for that anymore. Marijuana, we don't even prosecute if it's personal use amounts. Um, but uh, one of the things that's that's uh, I think striking about that once we did that in 2014. Mm-hmm. By 2017, the legislature had changed the law, and they took felony simple possession off the books. So many times the things that we're doing in Nashville, we were able to serve as a laboratory. They don't want to give me credit for any innovations, but they follow it, whether it's third offense, uh, simple possession, whether it's uh, essentially eliminating the drug-free school zone, um, whether whether it's uh trying to do uh, something to work with driver's license cases to try to help folks get their driver's licenses back. Um, you know, I'm fine to just share my share my statistics with anybody because the statistics that we track will end up changing uh, the justice system across the state. So one of the things that got us started in this conversation about this particular race was we had a neighbor who um, 
had actually accosted you at some event about because uh, <laughs> we've had a, a group of young men in our community. We live in Old Hickory who are kind of just revolving door. They they do, uh, you know, they'll go steal lawnmowers. They'll go steal stuff off decks. They do all that kind of stuff. They go in, they go in for just a little while and then they get sent home. And then it just kind of it's happened again and again. And part of what. Um, uh, Tim was telling us in, in his conversation with you, you were talking about that notion of evaluation, uh, the psychological stuff. But, I mean, how do you address – because uh, folks, you know, in the communities, I've had a couple of I've, – I've lost a, uh, a kayak and a couple of lawnmowers now. And, and one of those you know, really, really good ladders that you fold up that yeah, does all the different yeah. things. God. So, so, I mean, how do we address those kinds of, of issues with where folks are seeing this stuff happening on a regular basis? And, and you can sort of identify who the people are, but it doesn't seem like much is happening. Right. Well, first of all, the Supreme Court says try not to incarcerate folks with uh, nonviolent offenses. But the rub there is the thieves, mm-hmm. right? For a long time, up until about a year ago, home burglary was not classified as a violent offense, right? Because nobody had been punched, nobody had been shot. If they were shot, then they'd been charged as a robbery, not a burglary. Um, but when I took office, I said, no, we're going, to, we're going to treat that as a violent offense, even if it's not under the statute and the judge might not consider it. We're going to say, if you break into somebody's home or if you break into somebody's car or if you steal somebody's car, well, that's a violent offense because it has those long-lasting impacts on the victim because you no longer feel safe in your home or right. you don't feel even safe uh, you know, leaving your car parked in the parking lot or maybe when your car got stolen, you couldn't make it to work and the next thing you know, you lost your job because you missed work and now you got to find someplace else to live. So uh, thieves are a real problem. We take professional thieves or multiple offense thieves as serious offenses. We, we treat those the same as the low-level violent offenses and somebody who's been doing it a lot and is, you know, your classic booster who's doing that for a living. Sure. Um, we treat that as somebody who is a, a, a much more serious criminal. Now, the college kid that shoplifts a beer out of the cooler at the MAPCO, yeah, we might let them take a class. Mm-hmm. And, and have their case dismissed to where they don't have collateral consequences of being branded a dishonest thief for the rest of their life. Right. But the professionals, uh, we take that very seriously. I've been working with the uh, executive director of the of the Green Hills Mall. Uh, you know, we've seen these situations from out of state, primarily northeast and west coast, where you know, like a group of 30 or 40 people come in and do a smash and grab mm-hmm. and then leave. Uh, that's a real problem, and we got to make sure that we do take whatever steps are necessary to make sure the folks know that we take that type of behavior seriously. And um, even if it is a theft offense, uh, those are serious offenses, and that requires uh, strong prosecution. Gotcha. You know, there's a couple of things, though, and we have to wrap up pretty soon. You, know, you got a schedule, and we have equal time issues. Y'all are but important the, enough. Uh, I'll stay all afternoon. Nope. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I felt my heart strangely warmed when I walked into this yeah. upper room. It wasn't your heart. It was uh, <laughs> the fact that they can't turn the air conditioning on in the church until Friday. So mm-hmm. We had this conversation. It's water-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it Anyhow, is. the Anyhow, um, so what are the odds we'll ever prosecute gun owners that leave their guns and cars and people steal them every night in Nashville? It's always just bugged me. It like, seems like such an obvious liability issue. Well, the, the, the issue there is, number one, our legislature is never going to enact any real meaningful 
uh, gun restrictions. Um, if you're not a convicted felon or someone who's convicted of of domestic violence, or if you're not using a gun during the commission of another offense, uh, our legislature just thinks everybody needs to have a gun at all times, and that is sad. And then the problem with that is people get so used to having a gun in their car that they then are are so lackadaisical about the responsibilities that they have with a firearm that they leave the gun in their car when they go into their house or their apartment and then somebody just walks up and flips the door handle it's unlocked let's see what's in the glove part and hey i got a gun you know guns and stolen guns are a real problem a lot of times these guns stolen out of cars are get in the hands of you know 14 15 16 year olds underage people who don't understand the sanctity of life or the permanence of death that have a stolen gun, nothing good is going to happen. So the question is, well, shouldn't we then prosecute the person who was so irresponsible that they left the gun in the, in the car? Well, so if I left my gun in my car and I call the police and say, hey, my gun was stolen, I've just confessed to a crime, how many folks are really going to do that? The other problem with that is I want them to report that the gun was stolen because I want to know what the serial number is and I want to be looking for that gun if it gets used or if uh, Nibin technology can identify that the shots were fired at some place in the city. I do think, though, that maybe we can get some type of law passed where if you don't report the gun being stolen and the gun is then used in, a, in, a, in some type of violent crime, that perhaps uh, there would be some level of liability for you. Right. And so that would give you incentive to not only report it, but it would give you an incentive to say, I don't even want to be in a pickle where I have to where I have to report. Uh, we're a couple steps away. The DA's conference will have to propose that to the legislature. I'm hoping to be able to get that through this year uh, it, to make it a DA conference bill and then get that in front of the legislature next year. We'll see what the uh, legislative body and the NRA does with that. But I would think that's such a no brainer because anything we can do to promote responsible gun ownership and to uh, decrease stolen guns getting in the hands of folks who could use them recklessly or intentionally, uh, we need to be doing that. That needs to be what we're about. That's awesome. So um, in terms of uh, just a couple other things that I've, I, I want to ask, one is, I mean, obviously you're one part of a system of criminal justice, and that involves developing partnerships with other organizations. And sometimes, and I may be wrong in this, but sometimes my appearance has been that the DA's office and the police department haven't always been on the same uh, same wavelength in terms of, the, uh, in terms of that. And then... Um, also, I know the community voted because of security, you know, in, insecurity about the system, the whole community oversight board and putting that in place. How do you see your relationship with both of those organizations and how do you see that improving, say, over the if you get if you're reelected? My relationship with the community oversight board is tremendous. Good. Um, I have uh, supported that uh, referendum. I voted for it. I dealt with uh, very closely with the first executive director, William Whedon, mm -hmm. and I speak frequently to Jill Fitchard, who's the current director. I have a liaison from my office that meets with her. I have signed uh, a document allowing uh, them to see TBI files that are not available to the public so that they can do their investigations in a timely manner and, and uh, be able to come to appropriate outcomes. With regards to the police department, uh, it is no secret that Chief Anderson thought that it was a major betrayal of the police department that when uh, Officer Lippert 
shot and killed Jacquez Clemens that w- when we had our press conference announcing that we were, we could not prosecute him because there was an independent witness who said that Mr. Clemens had actually pointed the gun at Mr. Lippert, at Officer Lippert for a, a fraction of a second. Um, we, we couldn't go forward based on the law at the, at, on the books because um, we couldn't overcome you know the, the, the not only the self-defense claim but the kind of super self-defense that police officers have. But we did in that same press conference say, you know what, the police department needs to change their terminology because they immediately wrote every police report as the suspect was the person who was killed and the victim was the officer. Well, the person who's, you know, and we said that. They also had police reports where they said justifiable homicide within five hours. Right. And we said, you know what, you really shouldn't be coming to that conclusion. Because if that's the lens through which you are looking at something, there's no way it can be an unbiased. You just need to say suspect one, suspect two. That's what what uh, 21st century policing report says. That's the way the TBI did it. And the other thing was, as I as I uh, brought in the TBI to start investigating all officer involved shootings. Well, for whatever reason, uh, Chief Anderson took offense to that, and this is the same man that when. When uh, there was a driving while black report that mm-hmm. Noah had come out with after right. an extensive study, he called the study morally disingenuous. So um, I still got along really well with the commanders at all eight precincts. I still had worked to have good relationships with them and to make sure that we had liaisons to our office. And and we made sure that no cases fell through the crack and cracks. And we had good relationships in order to make sure the cases came to us mm-hmm. in a manner where we could go forward and successfully prosecute. And so we did. Um, but there was some friction between me and Chief Anderson. Now, John Drake is amazing, right? Okay. I talk to him regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I, in fact, talked this morning. And we exchanged texts yesterday. Uh, he and I have known him since back when he was captain over the Domestic Violence Division. And uh, we've worked together on a number of different initiatives. Uh, I really think he's the right man for the job to lead Nashville into our next uh, uh, phase of a city as we continue to grow. But we also have to care about not only uh, public safety, but making sure that every community in Nashville feels like the police are there to protect and to serve them and that, that, that they're not over police. One of the things he's done is is um, work to get his officers out of their patrol cars and walking their beats and knowing the people in the neighborhoods and being able to uh, make sure that they reduce crime by just having a presence instead of just driving through a neighborhood and looking for an excuse to do a proactive policing, a stop and a search. Right. So he's doing a great job. The other thing that I can say as far as a concrete example of cooperation, uh, when Chief Drake got the job, I went and uh, saw him the very first week. And I said, uh, Chief, I don't want to tell you how to do your job, right? But I'm, I've got one ask for you. And he said, you know, what is it? I said, I would like for you to re-centralize the murder squad. We'd had a centralized murder squad. Nashville uh, had been one of a, probably about a dozen cities that had decentralized in the early 2000s under Chief Surpass. Chief Anderson continued that decentralization. Our solve rate on murders had gone down to 35%. Uh, even the folks at the Department of Justice were like, came to us and they go look Nashville's the only city that doesn't have a, hasn't gone back to a centralized murder squad and I couldn't do that wouldn't you know, right, all I sure. could do is all I could do is ask um, but I asked Chief Drake that and Chief Drake said to me all right if I do that what are you going to do <laughs> right <laughs> and I said well, I'll tell you what I'll do I'll take the deputy district attorney a man named Roger Moore and he'll be the liaison to the murder squad 
I'll take all six team leaders and I'll give make them uh, a sounding board to where we will meet regularly with the murder squad that you centralize and all the detectives that you've got there to help solve. Because if, you, if you're decentralized, somebody in East Precinct might make a murder in West Precinct and they don't have the leads in West Precinct or know these individuals from across town. And so that's why the solve rate was down. But, but so we've got that team. And then uh, what I did is I went to the judges and I said, let's make sure that murder, murder cases are assigned based on the date of the offense instead of just being randomized. And the judges agreed to that. So now when a murder happens in Nashville, we get a call instantly. Roger Moore can go onto the scene or can advise the officers right away, the deputy DA. He can also give a call to the person who's going to try the case, and they can get involved even hours, days, or even weeks before the arrest is made to make sure that we've got the best case possible and to make sure that we're going to be able, you know, the search warrant's going to hold up in court, that that we've anticipated any defenses that the person might have. And so, and so working to drive down the solve rate and make even better cases, the team meets with the police department every month. Roger gets calls when, whenever a murder happens. The team leaders are excited because they're able to be a part of the initial investigation. According to Chief Drake, our solve rate for the first quarter of 2022, 75%, mm-hmm. as opposed to 2020, that was th- sure. 35%. Uh, you know, the other thing that's exciting about it is we've, just like every other city in the country, we've seen our homicide rate go up and up and up, right? Well, with these new initiatives that I'll give the most of the credit to the MNPD, but partially thanks to the work of our office, we're the only major city in the country that saw our murder rate go down in 2021 as opposed to 2020. So we're making great progress in really important areas, and it's because of a good relationship between the district attorney's office and the police good. department. Yeah. So um, tomorrow is starts early voting. And, uh, you know, now we've had a chance to speak with all three candidates. Y'all are all intelligent and articulate, and you have some different visions of what you want to see happen. But, uh, you know, all are good people. I think want the best for our city. Why should people push the button for you um, as we think about going into voting next week? Sure. Um, I've been doing criminal justice reform since the day I took office because I knew uh, that we were over-incarcerating a number of folks, but I also knew that the resources need to go to the violent crime. So we've got a great record on rapes, murders, uh, armed robberies, guns. Conviction rate on that's well over 95%. Uh, With regard to domestic violence, we lead the country in number of victims who show up in successful outcomes. But with regards to the other lesser offenses, by having these interventions, right, these diversions out of the system, we've been able to reduce our jail population from 3,151 a night in 2013 to 1,510 last year. We've seen a decrease every single year because we're being smart about the way that we're using that severe sanction of incarceration, whether it's bail reform, whether it's not putting people in jail for minor stuff, whether it's not using probation unless the person needs support. We've we've cut the number of people on probation by two-thirds over the last eight years. And, and, and the number of people in our in our jail in half. That saves our city over $50 million in incarceration costs, right? More importantly, we've got 1,600 people every single night, tonight, tomorrow night, the next night, every single night that are home with their families and going to work tomorrow morning. That's important to have a healthy community. Real reforms, common sense reforms, 
we were ahead of the curve. When I got when I took office and started these programs and initiatives, criminal justice reform wasn't even a term, right? I tried to just say, look, this is common sense. Let's make sure that we're using uh, the criminal justice system in a smart way to where it's not a criminal justice system, it's a justice system. And so uh, that's what I've done for eight years. We've got some great uh, big projects that are on the drawing board that hopefully uh, we'll be able to get in place later on in 2022. Uh, I'm always looking for best practices. And, uh, and and so I really expect that we can drive that number down from 1510 even 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 fewer, but at the same time end up with a healthier and safer city by the types of uh, innovations that we've done, the supports that we're putting in place, and by really targeting the violent crime. My, my office has won every single big case that we've had. Vanderbilt rape case, we had to win that four different times because we had to try the co-defendant separately. Waffle House mass shooting, few few uh, a couple months ago won that case. The Burnett Chapel Church of Christ mass shooting won that case. Uh, the Dogwood uh, stabbing at the Dogwood Bar that we just had a couple weeks ago. We are the, I like to brag that the 70 assistant district attorneys that I've put together are the best law firm in the state. And, and I stand behind that. We are doing an amazing job. We are also, I want to just throw out one last brag, mm-hmm. we're also cognizant of the fact that we're human beings. And in any institution that's created by human beings, run by human beings, sometimes we make a mistake, right? I don't want to ever make a mistake when we're talking about somebody's liberty, right? Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, we are human beings. I started the state's first conviction review unit. Um, It's one of the first in the entire Southeast. Outside of Florida and Texas, I think it is the first conviction review unit. And so we are open to someone bringing to us new evidence of actual innocence. And then we aggressively investigate the case. And if we determine that we do not have confidence in the conviction, then we will go to court and try to and try to cure that to the best that we can. If somebody's lost years of their life, well, we can't give them their years back, but we can at least give them their name back and we can give them their dignity. Nashville, Tennessee, right? has because we exonerated five people last year and two the year before but in the last year per capita we've got the most successful conviction review unit in the in the in the whole country in fact we're going to be featured on cbs this morning i think this weekend um and uh so having a unit like that i think promotes public trust in the system we're all skeptics about institutions these days, right? And some folks are even skeptics about the church these days. We're, we're, we're skeptics. But when an institution is willing to uh, reach out, acknowledge the fact that they are not perfect, and be open to, uh, to, to looking at past decisions, past actions, and making sure that we get it right, uh, I, I think that promotes trust in the district attorney's office and the justice system as a whole, because as a community, we have to believe in the law. We have to believe that the law applies to everybody, but we also have to believe that, you know what, we're all working together to make sure it's a safer city and that the system is fair. By doing all of these uh, programs, initiatives, and being open to uh, this type of examination, I, I think I've done that. 
And uh, so I'm excited to continue that work for the next eight okay. years. And if folks want to find out more about your campaign, where should they go? VoteGlenFunk.com. Vote Glen, I can't even say it. VoteGlenFunk.com. And you well, speak thank for a you. living. I do speak it's for like a living. It's, it's like I mess yeah, up exactly. all the time. So thank you again for being here. We really do appreciate your time, and we wish you the best. It's going to be an interesting uh, few weeks until we see what happens in this election. And Absolutely. you have anything, any no, final just words? Thank you, General Funk, for being I wanted to say that just once. <laughs> Uh, for being with us and uh, contributing to the podcast and letting the people that are listening know more about what you stand for and, and what you're looking forward sure. to doing as I'll, DA. I'll be glad to come back anytime if you have a, a hot topic that you want to discuss that is something that's on the radar of the state or national. Glad to come back and visit with you or guys anytime. Any great restaurant that's new to Nashville that you <laughs> your family likes? You know, I am... I am such a creature of habit and somebody who might not... I, I just like going to Las Palmas. That's, okay. that's, that's, uh, that's, fantastic. That's what I like. <laughs> Meet you there anytime. Great okay, choice. Great. Thank you. Well, we're back, and thanks, uh, General Funk, for – we just love saying that. General so, Funk. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, General, General Funk. Funk, for being uh, being our guest. And, uh, again, Election Day, um, early voting starts tomorrow. I don't actually the know. The primary is May 3rd, right? May 3rd. That's correct. Thank and you. And so there, that's when the primary will happen, and because it is a seat that will be decided in the primary – Yes. Unless there's like an asteroid hits Nashville or something. The election At which is point pers- it really won't matter. Yeah, election is pretty much over after yeah, the primary. Absolutely. I mean they they don't go to work immediately, but it's pretty right, much over. Right. So okay, well that was a great conversation. Couple of things, yeah, and he was you know, listen, the guy is a professional um, politician on top of the fact that he's a great attorney and right. he's like I mean he's great at his job sure. so uh, he came and, and uh, anybody listening to our podcast will get an opportunity to hear exactly what you know uh, what he's stumping on what he believes in what he wants to do and I think uh, I think we stayed out of the way and let all of the candidates articulate their points that was what we were and trying that was to the do goal. So we're, and we'll continue to try and do that where there are yeah, uh, where there are you know opportunities to do so. So that was that was great. I really appreciate. It. He came and he had some some folks with him that super made it super comfortable, and uh, we got right through it. So it was great. Yeah, I don't think we're going to end up doing the judicial judicial council um, candidates because there's just like four hundred fifty. Yeah, yeah four hundred fifty two. There's so some of them are almost un. Uh, uh, unopposed and their thing yeah it's just it's it's a thing it's too common. so where but, there but is I, a competition we'll have a conversation but i still think probably in this election the da's office is still the most important of all the offices we're no electing. there's no question because uh, no the question. da just has far too much power in we my may opinion. look at all the judicial candidates over the next week or so and and if there's something that we think people should look into maybe point it out but right. I, don't, I don't currently have anything huge to add to it i don't currently know most of their names so well, David Bradley's running. He is running. Yeah, so he's a nice that. guy. He's a very nice guy. He's a very nice guy. I like David. Uh, yeah, he I, is I, a, this isn't an endorsement. It's you, not, but, but it's like, but you know. but I will say that, and he's not running for criminal court or whatever. He's circuit court something. And, something. Yeah. And you know, he's he's a nice man. Yes. All right. So. Uh, what else do we need to talk about today? Well, there's some great stuff going on in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, guys, so funny. People always ask us 
like if Nashville's like a blue city or a purple city or a red city and all that kind of stuff. Yes. And that's that's a, not an easy question to answer it's all not. the time. I mean, it's I think my suspicion at this point is I used to say it was a very it was a blue dot in a red state. Yeah. Now I think it's sort of a purple dot. I think that's probably in right. a scarlet bleeding red state. Yeah, um, but so even so, Amazon has dedicated to give seventy-five million dollars to uh, Nashville to help develop eight hundred affordable housing doors in the city. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. So now, Amazon, are, who is now going to be like this is a you know, trillion dollar company. Yes. Right? So they've come to Nashville. Now, right. to be fair, we already gave them about eight times that amount just to come here. In tax breaks. In tax breaks. Yes, so of course. instead of actually paying taxes, that then the city of Nashville could determine what the best use for those taxes were through a, an elected representative process. Sure. It's an interesting process. It People is. should look into it. Yeah. Uh, if you do it that way, um, you know, we could spend the money on whatever but sure there's they're committing yeah 75 million dollars well that's 75 is that nationwide or is that just a national right here in nashville tennessee well 75 is better they're than actually, nothing in nationwide i will say this uh, so 800, right 800 million no two billion well i have a two them. billion dollar commitment to housing equity fund where they will preserve and create more than twenty thousand affordable housing units in the regions it calls home and so uh that's probably you know it's like a day's earnings for jeff bezos or something like that two billion that yeah. depends on what he's been you know if on days that he's not flying in on a spaceship right i'm sure that's about a day's work yeah yeah, I did hear Mackenzie gave some money to uh, Meharry. She did uh, she, quite a lot. Yes, I, I love love what she's doing there. Which is uh, th- th- for those who don't know, Mackenzie Scott, who's Jeff Bezos' uh, ex wife, uh, has determined that this all this money she got in the divorce settlement, she's just going to give away, and yeah, she's she just, is, and it's kind of like no strings attached. It's not if you've yeah. ever done grant funding, you uh, know it's the worst always, it is experience the, in the world. It is, and you've got all of these things you've got to report and this and that and she's kind of like um, she looks at the business or she looks at the organization and says yeah I can support that here's You're the money good work here's a hundred million dollars exactly right? and the she can't give it away as fast as she makes it back she owns like yeah four percent of Amazon or something right. like that and uh, so it's it's, a, it's kind of fun. It is. Mackenzie, by the way, if you listen to this podcast, I know of this great nonprofit here in Madison that could <laughs> yeah, yes. would be, do some great work with you. So let's talk. Have your people call my people. It'll be great. All the best. You can, you can go to our Facebook page or find any of us. So anyway, media. what's the downside of this Amazon well, thing? It's a damn loan. Oh. It's a loan. It's with not Amazon in, giving interest-free? 75. You know, gosh darn it. No. Not interest-free. It's low interest. So who are they loaning the money to? MDHA. Oh. So MDHA, for those who don't know, is the Metropolitan Nashville Development and Housing Authority, which is 
theoretically the folks that are supposed to run the projects and they do they the, do the, that the, job the, the low income housing projects that we've had for years and years uh, but they also several years ago became a major developer in Nashville that were loaning money to all of these other things to help Nashville become the it city I, I never quite understood how that all worked but um, and MDHA for those who don't know is not it's a quasi-governmental agency. Yeah, it's kind of like the Convention and Visitors Bureau. Right. Everybody thinks it's part of the government of Metropolitan Nashville, right. but not so much. Yeah, the mayor does not have any authority to say, hey, guys, you need to put people here, you know, or build this housing here. No, so, what they're good about is they come to the city council and the mayor and ask for money. They do that well. That they do. They do. So, it's a gift. So uh, from what I understand, Amazon is loaning MDHA money for um, this one uh, project that's part of the Casey, re-envision re Casey project. I guess. It's like, so they're going to do this first bit of it is- um, Cherry Oaks or something yeah, like cherry, that. Yeah, 7.1 million loan for 96 units in East right. Nashville. It is considered mixed income development. Right. Um, so, I don't know. These things... So, so again, this is one of the things that MDHA has sort of embraced, and they embrace this under the last executive director. I don't know who the executive director is now, which I, is this vision of mixed income, the fact that you try to get rich people and poor people to live together, and that lifts poor people out of their poverty, and, and it, it doesn't create these ghettos in terms of what uh, public housing has done in the past. It, to it, me, it's like, you know, I hate to be that guy, but it seems like kind of one of those, like, white people racisty kind of things where it's like you know if we just had some of us living by some of them them would act more like us that's, that's what it feels like that's exactly i mean that's <laughs> part of the problem is that it Ugh. it is that um and then you know what i found with well, I think I've mentioned it before. It's like they built this uh, wonderful um, apartment, townhome, condo thing across the street from Holy Name Church down on in East Nashville on Main Street. Um, and that particular church has been doing feeding of homeless people for years. A long, long time they've had this feeding program, Loaves and Fishes. And... <laughs> It's amazing how the white people that decided they wanted to move into that town all of a sudden started calling the cops and saying, there are homeless people outside our They're building. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. It's kind of like they were here first, folks, yeah. you know? Um, so, yeah. It's, it's like people that buy a house during the summer next to an elementary school. Right. Then school comes back into session and they're like, this is terrible. All these children are screaming in the playground. Part of the problem about <sighs> the, the sort of mixed unit thing is unless there's some pretty stringent laws, which the state legislature won't allow, um, to sort of say this unit has to be affordable. What often happens is that it'll start off with a mix and then they'll go, oh, we can make more money because there are rich people that want to live here. And and suddenly Slowly it, but surely. it doesn't. It, it just becomes an apartment building. It just becomes an apartment <laughs> building. And, and, you know, again, my problem with affordable, because they start throwing out this, well, it's going to be 70%, you know, it's eligible for folks that make 70% of the average mean income or, or they make 30% of the average mean income. For most folks that are needing affordable housing, they just want to know what the monthly rent is. And is it under $800 a month? Um, because the fact is, is that 
if you're making thirty-five or forty thousand dollars a year, you can't afford much more than four or five, six hundred dollars a month. That's that's about all you can really afford. Absolutely. And particularly with the inflation the way it is right now, you know, most of those folks maybe have gotten some pay increases, but not enough to keep no. up with inflation. It's so, really interesting. I'm looking at a thing here, like the MDHA. You know, they did this thing, which we've talked about a bunch. Right. If, if you haven't listened to the podcast, The Promise, oh, by Nashville Public Radio, uh, won a bunch of awards and is, is absolutely tremendous. But go back to the very first episode and listen from the beginning. It's about the James Casey homes in East Nashville. Right. So MDHA has this thing called Envision Casey, which is their plan to uh, demolish all of the old buildings. Right. And then the reason the podcast is called The Promise is because at the time, uh, the city of Nashville had promised with the MDHA that everyone that currently lives in the James Casey homes would have a spot in the new apartments. Right. Now, over the years, <laughs> like so many promises by the government, it's gotten a little watered down. A little bit. And uh, yeah. Because I mean, we're now at, so to date, this is an article in the Tennessean from last fall, I think. No, yeah. no, it's re- more recent this week. Okay. Um, I thought I was reading the old one, but I'm now reading the new one. So the deal is that they have uh, Envision Casey, which was launched in 2013, mm-hmm. with the aim of creating 2,390 new units, including the demolition and replacement of each of the aging units there. Right. To date, 2013, remember, is when we started this. Right. I'm thinking that's nine years ago. To date, MDHA has completed 507 right. new apartments at Casey Place as part of Envision Casey Overhaul. Of those, of those, 507, remember we're shooting for 2,390. Right. Um, Of the 507, 271 subsidized units are reserved for Casey residents. Right. 271. 271. Just just a hair over 10% of where we're trying to get to in nine years. Look, I, I get the idea that we want to... I mean, we public housing is envisioned in the 60s and 70s um, or even in the 50s to some extent. It was really the 50s when it started. You know, created ghettos. And and there's no doubt about that. And I know there is this kind of desire to create these communities and sort of de-ghettofy them. But the problem is, is that white people, and I think it's mainly white people that do this, go in with these grand ideas without really looking at what the needs of the community are, what people need. And people just need a place to live. And and I don't think a lot of... overthinking it. Yeah. I don't think a lot of folks realize that, you know, if you have a felony conviction, you can't get a a public... You're you're kicked out of public housing for good. Now, are there people with felony convictions that end up in and around public housing. Oh, sure, sure. Their sister has Sure, you know, their sister has They live with their sister's house, all that kind of stuff. But then you also create this system where they have to lie (laughs) in order to... That's something, I will say, that's something that I think all of our guests uh, for the DA's race have talked about you know it's yeah. like we do we have created a circular system right <laughs> you know, it's exactly like, uh, we all talk about it like we're creating all these opportunities for people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps but even with that and we talked about this today um with general funk right I just love saying it the uh, never gets old about the fact that you know you can't 
give people a felony and then expect them to get a job and then expect them to, you know, I mean, it's like, it's just a circle. You know, well, like, uh, you know, for me, it, that ties in with, um, we, we talked with them a little bit about this bill that's going through the legislature oh, to, Lord, yeah, right. to make um, camping on public felony, pro- right. yeah, on, on, on camping on public property a felony. And, 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 I I testified before the legislature, which was interesting which, thank about you, this. By the way. Thank you. And and they, um, you know, they were like, what was so funny was the chair of the committee um, looked at me and said, "Well, shouldn't these public areas be available to all of us?" And my response was, "Well, yeah, those people are all of us too." You know, right, right, right. <laughs> they, yes. You know, and where do you send? Where do folks go when there is nowhere else for them to go? Um, there's just, uh, and so we're gonna. You got homeless people that can't afford to get a house or an apartment, and then you're going to give them a felony conviction, so they're ineligible now to get a, an apartment and get. And so it just That's creates just this so, circle of, yeah. of homelessness. And they know. They, I I do have to say this is my this is our weekly rant about the legislature. Yes, yes, we. It's all part of it. So they're I, only and, doing this to national. And I won't name names, but yeah. if you want to look up the Senate Judiciary Committee, you can figure it out. So there was a point. First of all, I had to get there at two thirty in the afternoon. Our bill didn't actually make it until the end of the docket, about six that night. Nice, that was fun. But um, there was a point. There's probably a lot to do. There, there. You know, they have a chairperson and then a vice chairperson and another vice chairperson, and and the chairperson was presenting some bills, so he couldn't preside. So he had this woman from the Murfreesboro area, who's the vice chairperson, and she's going to provide. Uh, she's going to preside, and and. I, I sat there and I just went, oh, these people really are not real smart, are they? Because the first time she looked out and said, is there any more questions? I went, okay, I'll give her that one. Right, right. But then the next eight bills were, is there any more questions? I'm yeah. just like, is it too much to ask that our elected officials Can are able English? to use grammar? All they, you know? or let's put it this way. Speak the native language. Speak the native language. Because they would sure be mad right? if somebody did that same thing with a Latin-ish accent. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, anyway. Now, I have encouraged my children, and everybody knows this since the time they were very young, to get to know their representatives sure get to know them personally because not because i want them to have influence and access and all those things i want them to understand that these are not bright people for the most part no it's really really kind good of salesman good salesman well i right, hate we to say go it but on I, forever but i we have think to stop. i will of, say between <coughs> you've been coughing me, a lot coughing, today i'm drinking too much coffee now is that possible? I'm at a point now where any additional coffee is actually, I think, causing me to have like a spasm. Okay. I didn't know that was possible for you. Yeah. Well, it is if you have allergies, too. Okay. Well. So are white okay. trees blooming in the front yard, and I've had two pots Quit of coffee. Quit drinking coffee. Any uh, any updates on restaurants, good things in Nashville well, that we I'm need to celebrate? Well, I'm going to. I have been invited to and have accepted said invitation to go to the very first inaugural uh, soccer match or um, football as we call it football, in the United yes. Kingdom and Germany. Uh, I'm going to go to the football match over at the um, Geodis Stadium and I'm excited to go to the first one. I like I like events like that. Sure. It's like that's the only time I'll get to do well, anybody will get to do that. So it'll be fun. Sure. So I'm going to go to that. I'm excited about that. It um, looks like a big space. 
it really does look great. I mean, it is the largest soccer-only facility in North America, which wow. is kind of a cool thing to be, I suppose. And I've always been against the soccer stadium being built there, but it's there now. So, so how so are you, now we how have are to you make planning on getting in and out of it? I my plan. I don't know. I'm going with other people, so I will right. be whatever is the courteous way to handle. It. If they want me to drive and park, I'll drive and park. Right. Uh, if they, my recommended way of going would be to go to maybe park at my son's house in East Nashville and then take the Uber or Lyft service. I think that probably would be a good idea. I feel good about we, it. We need a trolley, don't we, between the... I have to say, if they would build with the six or seven hundred train tracks that run around oh, yeah. the uh, fairgrounds there... It would be the easiest place in the world to add a, a weekend train or a game day train. It Absolutely. Would not be difficult, so. Absolutely. But CSX will never let it happen. No, no. And we act like uh, our legislature, the all powerful legislature. Exactly. Who, literally, at this point, I think they have to pick on transgender people because they're owned by everybody else. So yeah, pretty they much. finally, it's like, nope, no, those people give us money. Nope, those people yeah. give us money. Well, let's take. We understand that there may one day be, as a matter of fact, this came up in the legislature this week. They do these things, by the way, not to Tennessee. Right. The legislature does these things to Nashville. Right. Right. We happen to be in Tennessee. But it was funny because they were trying to come up with in the conversations about the two, not one, Mm -hmm. but two transgender bills that came up in the legislature this week. And no one could name one instance where they would apply. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know. Optics. It's, it's it is optics. Well, it's been another good week and oh, fantastic. And pretty soon, I think like maybe the next time we get together, we'll actually like just pontificate for a while. Yeah, we can actually get together and talk about things and I'll I'll try to go to at least one good restaurant this week and okay. come back with a review. Yeah, I haven't been to any either. So, well, uh thanks again oh, for it's being It's not true. I'm going to stop us. Okay. I get totally messed up on this. I went to Joyland last night. Did you? I've been wanting to go to Joyland. I went to Joyland last night. Uh-huh. Um, and I have to tell you, it's an excellent burger. My fries, a little disappointing. Maybe they just had been out a little too long or whatever. I went kind of early. But I had a cheeseburger that I will go back for. Oh, wow. It I, was good. I got to go. Yeah, we should go. It, and, it's been and on my list. Uh, I, see, I, what are we doing right now? Is it yeah, right, right exactly. Yeah. And so we're really close to yeah. being exactly the right time to go. And and then I did enjoy a milkshake. Oh, good. Uh, good. So I can tell you. Um, it's such an interesting uh, restaurant. You know, Sean Barack, yeah. you know, it's a great chef, and he, but he has this, this take on fast food. But then last week he had this pop-up with, is it Wiley Dufresne, who runs this restaurant in New York, WD-40? Yeah. He's a James Beard yeah, winner. Yeah, yeah, one of those And they guys. did a pop-up up at Joyland. I'm like, what's the deal? Great idea. Great spot. Go to Joyland and enjoy it. It was really good. All right. Y'all take care. We'll see you next time.